All right, I want to welcome all of you guys. I want to welcome those of you who are with us online. We are in part two of a three-part series called Thanksgiving. And um, we talked about this last week, but um, not only is Thanksgiving the best of all the American holidays, I mean, come on, food, football, and buffet pants. I mean, you can't, you can't really beat Thanksgiving. But, but Thanksgiving is actually essential if we are going to live the Christian life well. Because let's think about this for a second. We talked about this last week. If we are actually going to be like Jesus, which is the goal of the Christian life, if we are actually going to do the things that Jesus said, if we're going to practice love and patience and kindness, if we're actually going to love like Jesus loved and serve like Jesus served and give like Jesus gave, if we're going to do that, not just on our, on our best days, but if we're going to do that every day, the only way that's going to happen is if we, we're not doing it out of our own strength, but we're doing it out of God's strength in us, filled with thanksgiving for what God has done for us. And so we talked about that last week and said thanksgiving is this essential quality that we must have to live the Christian life. But here's the question that I want us to talk about today. So if it's so essential that we have thanksgiving, how do we know that we've fully grasped it? How do, we, how do we know for sure that we're really living lives responding to God's love for us? Like, what are the characteristics of a life like that? And to help us to, to, to explore that, we are going to take a look at a famous follower of Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago. Uh, this was a guy by the name of Philip. And some of you may be thinking, oh, you're talking about Philip, one of the 12 disciples. Actually, no, this isn't Philip, who was one of the 12. This is another Philip who was actually appointed by those 12 disciples to a very important leadership position in the early church. And the reason that he was appointed to this leadership position was because the church was exploding with growth, which was really crazy if you think about it, because, because the church is exploding with growth right after the founder and leader of the movement has just been executed in a humiliating way, crucified on a cross. So think about this for a minute. It's one thing for the founder of a movement to die, and then everyone kind of in honor, in that person's memory, in that person's spirit, you know, they live out the teachings of that person. It's a whole other thing when you think about what Jesus actually claimed. Jesus, his big thing was he didn't just try and like say, here's the way to God or here's, here's the way to live. I'm going to give you this code of ethics. No, 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 no. Get this. Jesus goes, only one thing, guys. I am God. I am the Messiah. I am the Savior of the world. That's, that was his big claim. That's what he went around proclaiming to people. He said, you want to you wanna know who God is? You want to see your heavenly father? Look right here. I am God in human flesh. So think about this for a minute. Okay, if the person who is claiming to be God and has built this movement, if they claim to be God and then they die, do you have a problem? The person who claimed to be God dies. The answer is yes, you have a major problem. Why? Because God can't die, right? So, so the movement is essentially dead, okay? It's over. Jesus has just been executed. We're done. But then the craziest thing happens. So just days after Jesus' death, hundreds and hundreds of people 
are going around and they're saying, yeah, 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 we know that he died. Yeah, we got that. But you're never going to believe this. He has actually risen from the dead. He's been resurrected. He's appeared to us. We have spent time with him. Guys, you thought the miracles were amazing. You thought the healings were cool. No, 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 no. We have seen the risen Christ. This proves it. This proves that he's God. And these people were so fired up that no one could shut them up. In fact, they were being threatened by emperors and religious leaders. We will kill you. And they just, they couldn't stop talking about it. They're like, sorry, kill us. It doesn't matter. We're going to be raised too. And these hundred people, several hundred people who were proclaiming that they'd seen Jesus, all of a sudden influenced thousands and thousands and thousands more. And in just days after Jesus' death, you have the whole city of Jerusalem is just full of these people who are, who are now saying, I believe I'm following Jesus. I'm putting my faith in him. And they didn't just put their faith in him. They were actually living like him. They were. And so you know how Jesus went around and he was all about the poor and the sick and the marginalized and the oppressed? That's, that's the same thing that this group of Jesus followers, that's what they were doing. And so they were taking care of the poor and the sick and the needy and the elderly. They were, they were making sure that, that widows and orphans were, were okay. And they organized this massive pooling of resources. And they were doing this huge food distribution thing that was going on. You can read about it in the book of Acts in the history of the early church. And we'll, we'll get to that in just a second. And so, so you see all this happening. And the, the 12 disciples... They are completely overwhelmed. <laughs> like, this is crazy. And so they basically, they, they, they have a meeting and they establish with the, the gathered community of all these Jesus followers. They're like, look, you guys have to appoint some people. And we read about it in Acts chapter 6, verses 3 and 5. They basically said to this group of Jesus followers, they said, look, you need to choose seven from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. Okay, so they wanted like seven of, of the most fired up people of faith. Say, we, we need them to be leaders. We're, we need their help to organize and lead all this stuff because there's just, there's so much to do. And so it says that they ended up choosing seven men. And they, they list Stephen there in verse five and then also Philip and then a number of other names. And so Philip is one of these guys who is known to the entire Christian community for how he lived out his faith. This is a guy that was filled up with thanksgiving for what God had done for him. And it just, it just emanated out of him. And so Philip was one of these guys who was helping with the food distribution. But he was doing way more than just that. And you can read about it. We're not going to look at the whole of Acts chapter 8. But in Acts chapter 8, he's doing all kinds of stuff. I mean, this was a man of tremendous leadership and influence in the early church. And so what I want us to look at today is I want us to look at two characteristics that Philip has that show clearly that this guy is full of thanksgiving for what God has done in his life. And we want to make sure that we have those same characteristics. So we're going to pick up the account in uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 26. This is what it says. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Verse 27, it says, So Philip started out. Now, 
This makes sense to me because, I mean, if an angel's going to appear to you, I don't know if an angel's ever appeared, but, but that's a pretty cool thing. An angel appears and tells you to do something, so he goes. And what I want you to notice is that there's a pattern here that you're going to see repeated again. And the pattern is that God speaks to Philip, and then Philip does what God says. Okay, is that pretty simple? Can we remember that? God speaks to Philip, and then Philip does what God says. So, God says, go down this road. It says, Philip starts out on the road. So on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Candake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. So on his way down this road, he encounters a royal official. Now this guy, I mean, this guy is super, super important. He is arguably the second most powerful man in Ethiopia, okay? He is in charge of all the money working for the queen. And this would have been like an amazing position. To be a royal official back then would have been awesome. Like I think about what it would have been like to be a recruiter. You know, if you were like recruiting for, for, to, to find these royal officials and you're telling them, man, you got to be super trustworthy and we got to be able to count on you. And you know, you got to have no skeletons in your closet and, um, and you're going to have tremendous power and influence and, and purpose. And you can impact all of these lives. It's just, it's so amazing. There's just one minor slight downside to the position. Just one tiny little thing that you have to do. You just, you just got to get castrated. I mean, but as long as you're, as long as that's okay, are you good with that? Then, then it's, it's cool. And, and the reason that you'd have to get castrated is because, is because you, you had to be able to be trusted. You, there could be no playing around in the royal palace. Okay. There was no way that you were going to establish your lineage and nothing was, there was going to be no way that there was going to be some sort of a takeover through something that you were going to do. And so this was just a way that they could guarantee back then that you would be trusted. So, um, so I guess he decided the sacrifice was worth the power. And that's why he became a eunuch. That was what a eunuch was. Okay. So here is this royal official, very, very important, very powerful person. So it says on his way, he meets this guy. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. So what we know about him, this Ethiopian eunuch, is that he was um, a follower of the Jewish faith. And what he had done is he had gone to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God and to give his offerings and his sacrifices. And he's, it says in verse 28, he's on his way home. And on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. Now, we, this is one of the books of the Hebrew scriptures that we know in the church world as one of the books in the Old Testament of the Bible, the book of Isaiah. So he's reading this thing, he's sitting in his chariot, and uh, it says in verse 29, the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Now, this is the second time in four verses that God has spoken to Philip. And some of you may be like, man, that's, that's so cool. That is so interesting. Like, God is really speaking to this guy. I can't wait to see where it goes from here because clearly something's about to happen. God's speaking to him so much. And you may be excited, but I got to tell you, I'm frustrated, okay? I'm frustrated that God's spoken to Philip twice in four verses because, because I want God to speak to me, okay? If I'm going to be honest, I'm a little jealous, and I would say that most of us here, unless you got dragged here, and I'm sorry if you did, okay, uh, the hour will be over soon, I promise. But most of us who came here on our own free will and volition, 
We are here because we are trying to experience God, aren't we? We, we actually, we're here because we want a word from God. We want God to speak to us. And I'm sitting here going, man, God spoke to this guy like twice in four verses. Why is he speaking to me? I mean, this is what I do full time. My full time job is to get God to speak to me. Okay. So I'm a little, I'm a little frustrated if we're going to be honest. And, and I'm sitting here and the question that as I was reading this is I'm like, well, how come God's speaking to Philip and I don't feel like God speaks to me like this? What's Philip doing that I'm not doing that's getting God to speak? Now, here's what we know about God. God does not force his will on us. He doesn't force his own way. See, God loves us so much that he has given us this incredible gift that's called free will. Because what God knows is that love that is forced is not love. Love must be freely chosen. And so, and we all know this, God gives us a choice. We can choose God or we can choose not God. And so, clearly, God isn't forcing his way. He's not just talking to Philip who's not interested. Philip has a posture toward God that is worth noting. And the posture is that Philip has invited God to speak. If you want to write this in, because this is the first characteristic of someone whose life is full of thanksgiving for what God has done, you are in a position where you are inviting God to speak. You're inviting God in to your life. So here's the question, okay? You may be saying, well, of course I want God to speak, but here's the thing. Have you consciously asked God to speak to you? Is this something that you do on a regular basis? You know, um, for those who were with us last week, we talked about how maybe for some of us in the spirit of Thanksgiving, we need to have a season where we stop asking God for things and just for a season, because we are told we are supposed to ask God for things, but just for a season to kind of recalibrate that maybe what we should do is just thank God for what he's already given us and push into who God is and thank God for him. And you know, as I was doing that this past week, which proved to be a very difficult, challenging exercise, one of the things that I realized is when, when I stop asking God in this short season that I'm trying to do that, and then I just, I said, God, I, I, okay, I'm leaning into you. I want, I want you to speak. I ran out of things to say. And then all of a sudden, like, it was quiet. And I was like, man, I don't know that I really ever give God a chance to speak back. I don't know if this happens to you in your prayer life, but I'm so busy rattling off all the stuff I'm thinking about, worried about, you know, need God's help with, that I don't actually stop to just get quiet and see what God is actually saying to me. So that's the challenge for us. Are we inviting God to speak? And then are we getting quiet enough to actually hear what God may be saying? Now, some of you may be saying, well, that's all well and good, but I mean, shoot, even if God were to say something, like, how do we know that it's really God speaking? How do we know? And that is a great, great question. I remember when Becky and I first moved to D.C., uh, Becky's first job, she was working at the Literacy Council of Northern Virginia. And um, she had a colleague who walked in one day, and he announced to everybody that morning he said, hey guys, I've got some news. I just want to let you know that I'm going to be um, resigning from this position and um, I'm going to be moving to China permanently to teach English in China. 
And uh, everyone's like, whoa, well, how, how did this happen? He said, well, God, God told me. God told me that this is what I'm supposed to do. Well, this was very interesting because this guy was not a, a very religious person at all. But it's hard to argue when someone says God told them to do something, you know? So they were like, whoa. So they're just trying to make some conversation. They said, so like, what is your wife, you know? And don't you have like a five-year-old daughter? Like what, like, what does your wife think about like you guys all moving, just up and moving to China? Like, what's that look like? And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. They're not coming with me. Like, they're staying here. I'm leaving them, and I'm going to China to teach English. Like, okay. So let me just ask you guys a question. Is there anybody in here who would raise their hand and say, yes, that is God speaking. God spoke to that guy. That was God. Is there anyone who would shoot their hand up and say, that was, that was definitely, that, that yes, God wanted him to leave his wife and his young child and go halfway across the world? No. I bet, though, we'd have a few hands if I said, does anyone think that guy's been a heavy drug user in his life? Okay? Because here's the thing. There's certain things, and it's just obvious, isn't it? We know. But what about when it's not so obvious? We've all had those moments where we're trying to figure out, was that you, God? Like, am I supposed to do that? And you may be wondering, what does it look like to try and figure that out? And I just, if we could, I kind of want to geek out over something I learned in seminary for just a couple of minutes that, that was actually one of the most helpful things I learned throughout my seminary experience. As we're trying to figure out um, what is God actually saying? Is this the word of God? And this comes from arguably the greatest theologian of the 20th century, uh, a German theologian by the name of Karl Barth. And Barth postulates this theory that, that actually with the word of God, there are three forms of the word of God. There are three forms. Often when we think word of God, we're thinking, oh, isn't there just one? He says, no, there's three. And this was so helpful for me. So I'm going to share these three with you. And maybe they will be helpful for you as you're saying, man, I heard this. Was this God? I'm not sure. Okay, check this out. The first form of the word of God is the proclaimed word. The proclaimed word of God. The proclaimed word of God would be a word that you hear from God that's spoken in a sermon or in a Bible class or, you know, maybe you're in a community group and somebody shares a word with you and it is just so spot on. Or maybe you're, you're reading some sort of a Christian book or I don't know, but you know, it's just something and it's just, it's not, you're not reading it in your Bible per se, but it's just a word and you're like, man, that is, I just sense that that is spot on what God is saying to me. So, if you hear that proclaimed word, it will always align with the second form of the word of God, which is the written word, which is what we classically understand as the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. So if you've ever heard a sermon or, you know, whatever, and, and it just starts to feel a little funky, you know what I'm saying? And you're like, I'm not sure, did I hear that right? Probably why is because you're starting to think of it through the lens of these scriptures. Because here's the thing. The proclaimed word will never contradict the written word. They'll be in keeping with one another. But what happens when maybe we're 
reading through our Bible and we're in a, in a part of the Bible that we're not quite as familiar with. It's, it's a, a little less well-known or, or a little less well-understood among scholars and in different circles. Let's say we're somewhere knee-deep in the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament or maybe we're in the, the last book of the Bible in Revelation and we're reading some statement and we're like, wait, wait, so like, does that mean I'm supposed to do that? Like, does that still apply to me right now? Like, is this God telling me that I need to blow that trumpet right now? Like, like what's happening? What, what, like, and and you're, you're trying to evaluate and you're, you're reading a passage of scripture. And so let me tell you about the third form of the word of God. The third form is the revealed word of God. The revealed word is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ that Christianity upholds, came to this earth to show himself fully to us, to clear up any confusion, is the perfect revelation of God. We want to know what God thinks about a certain issue. We have Jesus. We want to know how God interacted with a certain group of people. we We just look to Jesus. And so what you can do is, whether it's a proclaimed word, the written word, whatever it is, these forms of the word of God are all connected. So if it is not in keeping with the nature and the character of Jesus Christ, the revealed word of God, it is probably not God's word for you. I have found that so incredibly helpful in my life as I am just trying to hear God's voice and I'm trying to figure out what God is saying to me. So, don't move to China, okay? That's, that's, the, um, that's the takeaway, all right? Now, back to Philip for a second. So, Philip has this posture where he's inviting God to speak. And it says that the Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. So, it says in verse 30, then Philip ran up to the chariot. Now, notice what it does not say. It doesn't say, then Philip pondered whether he really heard from God. Then Philip debated with God. You know, I'm not really sure. Then Philip thought about how much he hates rich, important officials in their chariots and how self-important and and high and mighty they are and decided he didn't want to go. No. What did Philip do? It says, then Philip, what? He ran. Oh, he didn't just walk. He ran. Don't miss this. If you want God to speak to you, here's the thing. God is not going to force his own way. God is waiting for the invitation. But if you want God to speak to you, you must be willing to do what God says. And that, that is Philip. I mean, Philip, God says jump. Philip says, how high? I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I'm running. Here I go. And he's walking down a random desert road, you guys. I mean, he is just all in. This is why Philip is speaking. I mean, Philip is hearing from God. Now, so again, th- this is the application. The first one is invite God to speak. The second one is we got to do what God says. Now, you may be here and you're going, seriously? This is like the most remedial sermon I have ever heard in my life. Like, you're telling me, okay, invite God to speak and do what God says. Well, duh. Well, obviously, I mean, if God's going to speak, I'm going to do what God says. Okay. So if you're thinking that right now, permission to poke at you for a second? Okay. And I'm just going to tell you, 
I'm raising my hand as the first one who's doing this, okay? So I'm not just poking at you, I'm, I'm poking at myself, all right? Because yeah, we all think, of course we do what God says. I mean, when God speaks, when you get the lightning bolt experience, I mean, who doesn't? But let's be honest. Do we really do what God says? Honestly? Because I don't always. So let's just, let's just give an example. So let's say you're in church and the message is all about forgiveness. And you know, you're here in Jesus and Jesus is talking about how we're supposed to love our enemies and we're supposed to pray for our persecutors. And you walk out of there and you go, man, Pastor John, he just preached his tail off. That was an awesome sermon. I love that last story he shared, you know, with the guy and how he forgave and it was so cool. And and I remember how 10 years ago I forgave that guy. Remember he was so annoying, but then he finally moved away and then I forgave him, you know, and it was so great. Didn't have to deal with him anymore. And we sit there walking out being like, man, remember, see, I do what God says. I I, I remember I did that once. Meanwhile, there's a whole bunch of people in your life that you're just having trouble with, right? They've caused you pain. They've let you down. You're not forgiving them. When's the last time you prayed for them? Pray for your persecutors. Starting to get a little tense in here, okay? But I'm just telling you, I'm the first hand up, okay? Guilty. So, we got to be so careful because we sit there and we go, oh, yeah, I do what God says. But do you? Here's what we actually do. If we're going to be honest, this is what we do. We go, that was a good word, but see, that's just not realistic for me right now. <laughs> I mean, you know, God, and God, you understand. Like, the, uh, forgiveness is just, we're not ready for that. Stuff. I mean, they haven't even apologized yet, right? So we're, we're in this place where we're like, you know, and, and besides, God, you know I couldn't handle that right now. I mean, I just couldn't do that. I mean, shoot, we, we read a passage about Jesus and, and how we're supposed to be with our money, right? Open-handed and, and generous and helping the poor. And it's like, I would love to do that. But, you know, D.C. is so expensive. I'm just getting started. I, I haven't gotten the raise yet. I haven't got the promotion. I can't do that right now. It's just, it's just not attainable. That would put me in a bad place. God, you understand, right? And God understands, sure. But let's not kid ourselves. Let's not kid ourselves, okay? Because I don't want to kid myself. I don't always do what God says. So, yes, it sounds remedial. It does. But honestly, would you say you're like Philip? See that chariot over there? He just goes. He just runs. Okay, he's gone. Are we really like that? Is that our posture? Or if we're going to be honest... Are we pondering, debating, rationalizing, wondering? Okay, sorry, enough poking. That's good, but you get the point, right? We want God to speak to us. If we really live a life where we are so grateful to God for what he's done, could we just have a posture of God, please speak. And then really, honestly, when you speak, I'm gonna do it. It might be hard, it might be challenging, it might not be convenient for me, but I'm gonna do it. And then you will be shocked because you will start to hear from God. (laughs) You will. So Philip invites God in. He does what God says. And um, he runs to the chariot. So he runs and continuing verse 30, it says, and he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. And he says to this Ethiopian royal official, he says, do you understand what you're reading? How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. 
This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. It says in verse 34, the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who's the prophet talking about? Himself or somebody else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. So Philip begins to explain to this Ethiopian official, he's like, yeah, so actually that passage is talking about this person who sacrificed himself and laid down his life that it's actually talking about Jesus of Nazareth. See, he actually claimed to be God who came to take on the sins of the world. That through faith in him, and this is the good news part, through faith in him and him living a life that we couldn't live, we are made right with God. It's crazy. There's actually nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing we can do to deserve it. It is God's unconditional love and all we can do is receive it. That's it. And so he shares this with the eunuch. And it doesn't say it explicitly in the passage, but we know from what happens immediately following that the eunuch decided he was going to place his faith in Jesus. He believed that Jesus was the son of God and he starts following Jesus. And the reason we know this is because of what it says in verse 36. It says, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, Here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Now, what you see in the early church in the book of Acts is you see people coming to faith in Jesus Christ and many times immediately being baptized. Like in this case, they saw water, boom, let's, let's do this thing. It, it wasn't always immediate, but it was one of the first things that someone who put their faith in Jesus would do. Now the question is, why? Why would this be something that they would do so quickly, so immediately after coming to faith? Well, the answer is actually extraordinarily simple. Because Jesus instructed his followers to do this. If you become a follower of Jesus, Jesus says you are to be baptized. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so they would do that. That was them practicing doing what God said. And so they would be baptized. Now, I know there are some of you who are here and you have taken this amazing step in your journey of faith. You have put your faith in Jesus Christ and you've begun following him. That is incredible. But if you stop and think about it, Maybe you haven't taken that step of getting baptized. And if that's you, I just want to let you know what baptism is all about, or maybe you know someone who's in that category. So baptism is this sacred ritual that we do in the church, that Jesus instructs us to do, where we are immersed in water. And as we go down under the water, it's as if it symbolically represents us dying to our old life, our old way of thinking, our old way of living, where we primarily are kind of living for ourselves, 
And, um, and then we come up out of the water, which is symbolic, the way Jesus died and then was raised to new life. We come up out of that water to a new life, to a new a life that isn't based on us and our desires, but it's actually based on Jesus and responding to what he's done and putting others ahead of ourselves. And so this, this um, sacrament of baptism is something that we are instructed to do. Now, is this something that somehow makes us right in the eyes of God? Is it something that gives us some sort of premier status with God? No, not at all. So the only thing that counts in God's eyes is faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the only thing. That and that alone is what puts us in good standing with God. Does baptism, is it like something when you come up out of that water, all of a sudden you are like just an even more spiritual person? Like, do you have like a little halo and a glow, you know, as you break up out of that water? I'd love to tell you that that kind of thing happens, but it's just, it, it, it's not something that, that happens. Some people, it's this amazing experience in the moment, but for many people, it's not. It's like, man, that was really wet. Yeah. I can't wait to get out of these wet clothes. Um, so why do we do it? Well, because Jesus said that we're to do it. And actually, this is a way that we can express our gratitude to God. It's something that God says, we want you to do it. And it is a way that we say, yes, I am declaring, God, that I am following you. And this is a spiritual marker. It's a milestone in my journey. And it's just a response to what you've done for me. So if you find yourself, you're like, wow, I think that's me. Um, we would love to, to just have a conversation with you and, and talk a little bit more about baptism and see if that's something that is, uh, is a good next step for you. So what I'd like for you to do is, um, is go ahead and take out your Connect card, which is that little perforated uh, sheet on your, on your bulletin, and write your name, write an email and an, um, a phone number, and just write baptism. And we will just we'll connect with you and, um, and just find out if that's a good next step for you. If you don't have a pen, you don't have a bulletin, you're with us online, um, you can go to this link bit.ly slash 2018 baptism and you can just share your contact info using your phone or, or whatever um, so we'd love to love to have that conversation with you um, so here's how I want us to just close I want us to close with, with this exercise I want you to imagine something for me I want you to imagine that you are living 2,000 years ago you're living in the area of Jerusalem, and your name is Philip. And you, for some reason that you can only explain by an act of God, you found yourself on a road going down to Gaza. And you are in a pool of water with a guy that you didn't know five minutes ago. And as you pull this guy up out of the water with, with just water dripping all down his face, you look into his eyes and he has the biggest smile. He's beaming from ear to ear. And he's so excited that he gives you this big old bear hug. You know? It just, oh, this is so awesome. Because this guy, maybe for the first time in his life, this guy who's been on a quest 
for significance and power and influence. And he's been doing these trips back to the temple in Jerusalem to make offerings to God and give sacrifices. And he's always wondered, you know, do I measure up in the eyes of God? Do I have a purpose? Am I significant enough? You know, how does God really feel about me? This guy, for the first time in his life, has just come up out of that water, and he has realized the radical, unconditional love of God that we find through Jesus Christ. And in this moment, he is so full of joy and freedom. I mean, he is just on fire. And you, my friend, you had a front row seat. You got to be right in there, a part of all that. God worked in you and through you to see that happen. How awesome would that be in that moment? You got to play a part in this guy's life. Now listen, we cannot even imagine what God wants to do in our lives. We can't even imagine it. Think of this. If God literally made you, okay, if he created you, think of how much he loves you, way more than your parents, okay? If he made you and has incredible plans for you, think of what God wants to do in you and through you. But here's the deal. God does not force his own way. He completely respects our free will, loves us too much to control us, to make us robots. Imagine what might happen if we took an active, conscious posture of inviting God to speak into our lives. We shut up long enough to maybe actually be able to hear from God. And then we were actually, honestly, genuinely willing to do what God says when God says something. Imagine what God may do. We have no idea what God may want to do in us and through us for other people or for this world. But we have got to be willing to do it. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for your incredible love for us. God, we are so grateful that you would be willing to come down to this earth to show us how to live and to demonstrate your love for us. God, I'm just praying that you'd help us to respond to that amazing love with lives of thanksgiving. God, help us to have a posture of invitation to invite you in. And then God, please, Let us be willing to do what it is you say so that we can just experience all you have for us. In Christ's name, amen.